Classic Business with Michael Avery, sponsored by Alex Forbes, for insight, advice and impact. FMR's Not The Daily News on Classic Business is brought to you by 10X, the authority on wealth creation that delivers 10X your future. Now, in 2024, I think few questions loom much larger than whether China can overcome the property crisis that risks limiting its long-run economic uh, potential. In recent months, we've seen uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping's team trying tirelessly to reassure the market and investors that they're going to act boldly and that they're going to repair a real estate sector that is bleeding and which generates as much as 30% of the country's GDP. And it was around middle of last year that uh, my next guest, uh, Anton Esso, who's the chief investment officer of uh, 10X, warned us about what was going on in the Chinese property sector. So um, you can say I told you so, Anton. Welcome and all the best for the new year. Uh, thanks, Michael, uh, and all the best to you. When we look at what's going on in China, I mean, obviously it's important for the global economy, but it's particularly important for South Africa because we're uh, a commodity exporter. China consumes a lot of commodities. What's going on? Can you just remind us you know, what the root cause of that property malaise in China is all about? Yeah, so China, I mean, really for the better part of the last uh, 15 years um, has been going through a, a massive um, investment investment boom. So, you know, if you look at the Chinese economy um, over the last, you know, the last 15 years, like something like 42, I think currently 42 to 44 percent of its GDP is coming from investment. And you, you mentioned um, property earlier, but you know, that, that, that's a proportion. And then the rest of it is obviously infrastructure spending. And um, that's really been their, their big driver of, of, of growth. I mean, China had something like 13% per annum nominal GDP growth in dollars, you know, from 2006 to 2021. So, and a lot of that really came from, um, from investment. There's a lot of excess savings in the, in the local market, which is trapped in, in, in China. And all of those savings are kind of recycled into banks who in turn invested in them and uh, in, uh, in in property and in infrastructure, and that um, you know went along its way for for a while. You know we all obviously saw the speculative um, booms that we saw in the residential market, and it really you know came to an abrupt end almost. I mean we we're almost talking three years ago that things really started to turn around. It kind of did coincide with 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 COVID, but uh, it was very much at the kind of you know, beginnings of 2020 when there were a number of um, you know, home builders, which which started to kind of hit the headlines and, and all the headlines, which you knew about overcapacity and and things really started to turn um, in the in the residential property market, then in commercial property. And and then the government um, hadn't really you know, gone about trying to trying to bring in some of this excess through changes in policies. Um, but really, the problem was that the that it was really too, you know, really far too, far too late. Um, so China's, you know, simplistically, China's major problem is that the role of investment in its economy compared to things like consumption is such a big um, element that it's incredibly hard for them to adjust away from the investment-driven economy into into a consumption. And that's what they've been trying to do, but it's um, it's it's a very difficult process for them to for them yeah. to follow. 
Yeah, and I mean, during Mao Zedong's rule, because it's a communist country, there really wasn't any private housing, was there? All of that was deemed illegal and against uh, Marxist principles. And really what we saw um, was a big reversal of that, uh, starting with Deng Xiaoping and now um, today with uh, private ownership of housing so widespread. And why it's such, I think, culturally an important asset class in China. I think important to understand that as well. What, what is your interpretation of the People's Bank of China's decision to allow banks to hold now smaller cash reserves starting um, from the 5th of February? How significant is this policy pivot? And you know, how is the Chinese government trying to respond to, to reassure investors um, that this isn't going to cause a long-term kind of structural decline in China? Yeah, I mean, in some ways it's, it is um, a game changer, but let's just take a step back for, for um, the listeners and, and, and kind of give some context as to what's actually happened um, because the, the, the equity market, um, you know, has is, is been a massive underperformer now for, for, a, for a number of years, um, particularly the last, the last two to three um, you look at the main um, onshore index, which are the three largest um, onshore Chinese companies. They, they've lost something like six trillion dollars worth of market cap um, since their peak in 2021. I actually saw a Bloomberg article which actually said that six trillion dollars is the total size of the Japanese stock market. So there we go. That's quite something. It's a big number. Yeah. <laughs> um, so you know, there's been a, there's been a, um, you know, we've, we've obviously seen all, seen all the headlines. And things really were, um, I think there was a fairly large amount of consensus views that last year was going to see a nice pickup in growth. And the China reopening story was a big driver of headlines this time last year. And obviously that kind of fell flat. And Chinese stocks really started to underperform you know, all markets, um, including emerging markets. And um, was kind of 20% underperformance versus the broader EM, which actually is incredibly unusual. I mean, emerging market equity exposure and sensitivity to Chinese equities has been very highly correlated. And last year was was definitely the, this exception. So things were really not looking great. And then what happened this year um, was almost a kind of a meltdown. You know, it was one of those ones where price action drove price action. And um, we were down at one point, um, you know, something like 10 percent uh, in the space of a couple of weeks. With all these things, um, you know, there's structured products, which always they always kind of reveal themselves when you have volatility. There's something called a, a it's called a snowball. Uh, great names these things, but it's called a <laughs> snowball, which is um, structured products um, which were, 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 bought, were bought by the wealth managers, which effectively have a high high coupon with a kind of what's called a knock-in. So if the equity markets go below a certain level, then effectively the whole thing unravels and you you lose your coupon and actually quite a fair amount of your principal. So a lot of that was what was going on. Um, at the beginning of this week, end of last week, and basically that type of selling, I mean, think about what happened in the 80s, we saw in the banking crisis in 2008, once you start to kind of trigger um, losses, kind of selling, create selling. Yeah. And and I think that's what really got the attention of the um, the People's Bank of China. So that, that was kind of like, you know, we really are kind of reaching this um, um, kind of um, – meltdown point and um the the announcement uh where are we now we announced on tuesday i think it was from from governor pan was very important you know he announced um a cut in what's called the you know the reserve uh, rate requirement of 50 basis points which as you say gives the banks more liquidity um to provide to the market and then um, he also hinted at further interest rate cuts 
And then there's this $280 billion program, which effectively um, incentivizes, I guess is the best word, the, the SOEs to repatriate offshore cash to invest in the local equity market. So those three things are real because it's effectively bringing liquidity into the local market. And what we had seen all of last year were was just small um, regulatory changes, a bit of uh, fiscal you know, um, um, changes, but nothing nothing which was going to move the dial. There wasn't any belief that the the, um, the Chinese government was in any way panicking, in any way worried, and and trying to kind of um, you know get in front of this. So that's why the market continued to to do what it did. It was just there was nothing really coming from both the central bank and from from the government around. Um, around kind of the, how extreme the situation's got. So it definitely is important how how important it is, I guess, is um, yeah. maybe we can kind of talk about that further. Well, uh, because that, I, I suppose, is the, the skeptical view in the market because you've you've had Xi Jinping and his inner circle really desperate to change the, the China cratering narrative. And that's been dominating media coverage for for some time now. The The problem, though, is it looks like you know, it's a process of kind of endless bailouts, maybe marshalling new ways of bank credit and this kind of top-down government spin. And many in the market fear that it's just uh, allowing China's default nightmare to fester and they're not dealing with the root cause of the problem here. Uh, and that is an economy that is uh, laboring under debt that can't stimulate confidence to, to trigger a consumption-led growth boom, which is what they were hoping would follow on from this uh, investment-led growth boom. What do they yeah. do from here? Well, I mean, we have to give them a little bit of credit um, because, in, in a sense, they recognize just how big the credit problem was and just how much, um, you know, credit-fueled speculation and property markets was, was creating bubbles everywhere. And actually, to, in, in a sense, trying to fix that is what's caused the problem. Uh, and it's, it's quite ironic because you have this all over the world, right, in terms of look at, look at – um, we've spoken about debt levels everywhere, right? They are very high. China actually did – the authorities actually did try and say enough is enough. We want to ultimately move towards a much more solid um, – those in Xi Jinping's um, kind of roadmap, much more solid growth. I think was exactly what the words he used. But something much more balanced and um, – more less speculative. So actually, the intentions were right, but the problem is when you have 300 to 350 percent debt to GDP, depending on which what we include and exclude, you know the, the size has got so so large. So you can't almost deflate that level of debt easily. So it's an they, they basically created an incredibly difficult um, and almost impossible situation to to work themselves out of. But just kind of looking forward, um, you know, this transition from uh, kind of you know such a concentration in investment to to consumption, we've seen that in kind of other emerging markets, you know, like a South Korea and and a little bit in Japan, you know, in terms of the, the kind of evolution of economies from emerging into into developed. The issue is that China is the second largest economy in the world, and um, it has such high dependency on investment. And um, such limited amounts of capacity from a consumption perspective to get that up meaningfully over a short period of time. So this is decades to to move from investment-led to consumption-led. And the net impact of that is that your GDP growth rate just continues to ratchet down, which is what we've been seeing you know, really mm. for the last four or five years. And the circular reference there is that ultimately you know, creates a continuous 
um, a stress on the level of debt. It creates a continuous stress on, on earnings and the whole kind of confidence element of it kind of feeds on itself. So, you know, it's, um, it's, it's in terms of the size of the Chinese economy, that's really important. In terms of the size, you know, and therefore their the, the, the share of global trade uh, and their share of global investment, you know, we've never seen anything really like this. I want to kind of say Japan in some ways, but it was it was obviously um, a, a different a different time. So yeah, yeah. I don't, you know, it's. Um, I think just the final point I'll make on this as well is the other the other game changer was much more around Xi Jinping's pivot and what happened with deglobalization and Trump and everything that's happening with, you know, onshoring, yeah. and therefore the kind of perception around Xi Jinping. You know, moving against a you know a, a capitalist type of market environment to one which is much more, even more state controlled than it previously was, and therefore the investability of China is something which most institutional investors um, they're really all giving up on it. Uh, so there's been a significant amount of institutional investors who just kind of lost confidence in the in the China story. Yeah. And how do you turn that around? Um, in a in a Chinese in a, in a system there which sets out these long term plans which um, are very clear. I you know it's hard to see. They don't pivot like you see in U.S. politics or in 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 in, in other economies. They are very clear in terms of where they're going. So it's a very difficult um, balance here as to how they can get that confidence back. Yeah. Um, in terms of their place in, in, in global markets. Yeah, and you remind me of um, the, the rhetoric that was used uh, in the, the period where they were really clamping down on the tech companies, for example, and uh, referring to addiction to social media as spiritual opium. Now, given China's history with uh, you know the opium um, crisis and, and, and wars, I mean, that's really strong rhetoric, but it shows you just um, how firm the the Chinese Communist Party is in in trying to um, steer society, even if that means trampling on some some market um, freedoms as well. So, uh, just as a concluding thought, then Anton, what do investors do? I mean, I, I was telling you before we started this, I was a one of those poor sods who invested in the Satrix MSCI China ETF, and I'm down uh, a significant amount since uh, it first lift, listed. Do I just sit tight, hold pat? Do I cut my losses? Do you think it will? Well, I mean, over the next few months, who knows, really trying to forecast markets over the short term is is very difficult. So, you know, you you kind of got to step back and look at it from a a long term perspective. Yeah, which is why I bought it. I just want to add that in there. I mean, I I bought it to hold for 10 years plus. Yes, we've had lots of those in our bottom drawer, don't we? But the um, yeah, I think that the biggest point really here is is that China is is you know got significantly cheaper <laughs> from its peaks in 2021. You know, if you look at it from a, a, a price to earnings basis, it's you know it's at around you know 11 and a half, 12, um, and you know compared to let's say the, the US, which is 23. Um, in fact, actually, it's lower than our local market at uh, at 12 and a half. So you know, it, it's and it's 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 cheaper than Europe, and it's che- cheaper now than the rest of emerging markets. So what you have now is is, is definitely a much more attractive um, valuation. So therefore, the multiple is a lot cheaper in terms of what you're paying for those earnings. So as a long-term investor, which we are, you know, we are kind of actually you know actually like the opportunity that these valuations are giving us to add more to to our Chinese exposure. Um, so you know, it's one of those things. As long as you're not 
worried about where this is in 12 months' time. You're kind of thinking out about the kind of the long-term real return opportunities in the market. And actually, China is is um, uh, getting cheap. The, 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 the obvious caveat there, whenever you think long-term valuations, bait, is, is, is this a value chip? Is this a Japan yeah. which went through multiple you know, multiple rallies you know, in the, in the midst of a 25-year um, bear market in equities. Um, and, you know, the jury's out on that. I mean, the biggest issue, therefore, is going to be around, around obviously, corporate earnings and, and can, they, can they get some corporate earnings growth, um, you know, across the economy as they restructure from investment debt into consumption. So much to consider there in uh, an analysis of where China finds itself and the implications for the world and for investors. Uh, and the upshot is if you bought high like I did, sorry for you, you're going to have to wait uh, quite a long time. But valuations are very attractive uh, in this. Uh, the Not The Daily News segment, uh, which is now brought to you monthly on Classic Business uh, by 10X, uh, which is an asset manager that provides investment solutions, delivering superior returns 10x your future classic business with michael avery sponsored by alex forbes for insight advice and impact